Hi, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm EPIC's Executive Director, Sam Ori. Developing countries represent a large source of potential future carbon emissions as they seek to rapidly industrialize their economies. Yet if the world is to hold future warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, these countries must identify a cleaner model of growth that relies on low or zero carbon fuels instead of fossil energy. This tension between maintaining access to inexpensive, reliable energy on the one hand and addressing climate change on the other was on full display last fall when countries met at COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland. India, already the world's third largest emitter, committed that half of its energy would come from clean sources by 2030. At the same time, the country pushed for a key change to the final agreement, weakening language from a phase out of coal to a phase down. On May 10th, EPIC hosted a conversation on climate policy in the developing world with Priyanka Chaturvedi, a member of the Indian parliament, Jonathan Pershing, former U.S. Deputy Climate Envoy, now with the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and EPIC Faculty Director Michael Greenstone. The event was moderated by EPIC's 2022 Journalism Fellow, Lisa Friedman, a climate policy reporter for The New York Times. Let's listen into their conversation. Thank you so much, Sam, and thank you to EPIC. It's, it's really an honor to be here and truly an honor to be with this crowd. Um, to have a conversation about fossil fuels and the global energy transition. Um, Priyanka and I have already been in one passionate conversation today. I hope this (laughs) will be another. Michael has been a go-to expert for for reporters for for years and years, and Jonathan has been to so many more cops than I have. But the ones that we've been at together, it's me chasing him around for a quote uh, in, in all of your different iterations of Deputy, envoy, envoy. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's really an honor and a pleasure to have this conversation. In November, it seems like just a moment ago, at COP26 in Glasgow, leaders pledged to keep global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. They vowed to phase down not out, but down fossil fuels, and to mobilize finance, to mobilize the $100 billion annually in public and private funding that was promised many years ago to help developing countries both mitigate climate change and adapt to the impacts. And in the months since, countries have grappled with COVID and economies rebounding, from from COVID with inflation and, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has caused gas prices to spike and has roiled energy markets and, in some ways, has turned the conversation about climate policy on its head. Um, Jonathan, I'd love to start with you. Has, Has Russia's war against Ukraine put climate change on the back burner in the U.S. first? So thanks very much, Lisa, and thanks to the folks at Epic. It's really truly a pleasure to be here and have a chance to have the conversation. It's lovely to get a chance to meet you and some Thank of your you colleagues so who, are, who are also here. Uh, so climate's, I think, one of those issues that has moved up and down on the agenda over the course of the past, well, let's call it three decades. 
Uh, you can start off a long time ago with some of the hearings that were done in the US Congress in the 1980s. Uh, Jim Hansen's one of the first people famously to have pushed that forward for a hearing that Al Gore held. Uh, I was actually at that hearing as a really interesting conversation. Al Gore used to run these essentially master classes on climate. And those of us who at that point were fairly junior in our careers used to go to the hearings just to hear a bit about who are the eminent scientists and what were they saying and what kind of insights could you get. It rose pretty high for those of you who were around then. It was a bad summer in the United States. Uh, we had the Mississippi River was largely dry in the upper reaches. The barges couldn't go down. So it was really quite a significant series of events. Fast forward a few years, and it was way down on the agenda. We were again looking at oil crises. We had price spikes. Americans were not that focused on it, and the agenda didn't really move. Fast forward again, the science gets more specific. People start talking about the agenda. Uh, the uh, Clinton-Gore administration now come in and negotiate a Kyoto Protocol. But at the same time, there's enormous resistance. And it actually is very pertinent to our current conversation because the resistance in no small measure was a function of who was not part of the debate. It was not China, it was not India, it was limited in that context to the United States and other Western economies. So how do you think about that? And then fast forward again, and the Trump administration uh, more recently, or the Bush administration first, and then we have an interlude, but park that. We have the Trump administration disbanding the entirety of the climate agenda. And then you come back to Biden, who says, no, no, this really is a serious problem. We really should work on it. And now you have this concatenation of outside events. I would argue that in every one of those iterations, it goes up, but it never goes quite as far down. So there's a, essentially a long-term increase in the way the American people have addressed and felt about the urgency of the problem. It seems consistent and coincident in my mind with the, more, the greater clarity on the science, our ability to say these are human-induced. If you look at the first report from the science, they say we think it's happening. The second report is we think people contributed to it. The third report says we're pretty sure. The last report says we're basically 99% certain. Those shifts are manifest also in public opinion. So even though other issues have risen, this has not disappeared. Now, what happens if Republicans come back? My guess is it goes down again. You look at the press and the pushback from the Republicans in Congress, from people like Mitch McConnell and his cohort, and you see a much reduced level of attention. But here's an interesting thing. Very recently, like a couple of weeks ago, the Senate committee responsible for the agenda on the Montreal Protocol passed the first time in decades an agreement to move forward the ratification of an international treaty. It was bipartisan. It was done in a, what we call a voice vote, which means that you didn't actually have to take names because it was so overwhelmingly agreed that there was no need to record who voted one way or another. There was consensus. It is essentially a climate bill. It's not protecting the ozone layer. These are substances that have climate effects, but that didn't deplete the ozone layer. It's a climate bill masquerading as a greenhouse, as, a, as a, 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 an ozone bill. And it was bipartisan. So here is a fundamental shift in where the community has been. Now, having said that, it also seems to me that it has fallen way down just since we came back from Glasgow. At Glasgow, we had these enormous global commitments. The US was part of those. I would submit the US helped drive those. At the same time, the attention is down. I look at the kinds of bills that we have passed since that window. We put more money into support for Ukraine. 
we put more money into arms. We did do some significant resources in domestic activities around infrastructure, but we couldn't pass what was termed the Build Back Better bill, which is a COVID recovery program that had probably the single largest benefit for a climate agenda, which is around subsidies for renewables. Those didn't move, they still haven't moved. Now, is that a function of this moment? Yes. Is it a function of how it will stay? Remains to be seen what Manchin decides to do. He certainly talks about doing something else, but I'm personally not all that sanguine. But how do we think about that structure? Climate didn't disappear. Clearly we have indicators that it is still there, but we also have indicators that it is down on the agenda from where it was even three months ago. For maybe the one person out there who doesn't know who Joe Manchin is, <laughs> uh, he, key votes in a evenly divided Senate uh, and who has been resisting uh, uh, voting on, on Build Back Better. Priyanka, I, 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 we have been uh, complaining about the heat, <laughs> um, but temperatures in India and, and Pakistan are, are astronomical. I think I just heard 116 high. I know many of the MPs visiting here don't need to be told about the, the heat wave, but I, I'd love for you to Tell us a little bit on the ground what climate change means for India right now in, in May of 2020 to, <laughs> where am I? And, and also what, it, what, this, what this means for the economy, for your economy. So the two things I'd like to begin with. Yes, we are facing a heat wave. And yes, every single citizen of the country at this point in time is alarmed with the rising uh, you know, heat uh, instances of heat waves and we haven't even hit the peak as yet it is only going to get hotter for us and i can only remember that instance where i think it was roberts and parks in their 2006 who said developing countries are going to face double the injustice of climate change and that they say at the back of two reasons that we are going to face the brunt of the climate change as well as we are asked to be or rather we are told that we are at the center stage of finding solutions to uh, addressing climate change at the expense of our economy. So those are two factors which I think really uh, face us as a nation. But as a nation, we also understand it has been at the forefront of our conversations, even in the parliament, we have been discussing it. We have been talking about our commitment. Our prime minister has been punching above his weight. I, I would say above its weight, India has been talking about the need for transition, because uh, transition for us is not just related to our economy, but is also part of environment has a, is a very integral part of how we as a country are. The cultural uh, history that we have has a lot to do with the five elements of environment. So we have made a lot of commitments as far as 2030 is concerned till 2030. We are looking at transitioning to about 500 gigawatts of um, other sources of energy and renewable energy. We are also talking about phasing out coal as much as we can. But we, at the same time, we are also standing at the cusp of, uh, you know, our economic trajectory taking another, moving to another level altogether. We have a vast population to look after and energy securities to address. So that is where we stand. And in terms of where India how India looks at itself while we are discussing about it, we're concerned about it. We are also hoping that when we talk about climate finance, the developed world would come forward and address, the, address it from the point of equity and climate justice, which we are not seeing. So we are looking at tech support, we are looking at resource support, we are looking at research support, 
And we're looking at funds in terms of climate finance because there will be huge amounts of public investments that would be required. So that is where we stand and uh, what we are grappling with, what we are struggling with. Every single Indian is uh, awakened to that fact. And we're just hoping that in terms of climate justice, we would see more cooperation rather than confrontation. I want to come back to almost all of those points <laughs> in the course of our discussion. Michael, I know you have a provocative way of looking at things. We don't have a climate crisis? Uh, yeah, so uh, I don't really want to be quoted in the New York Times saying that, but <laughs> uh, provocatively, I would say we have a global energy challenge. Uh, and my view is uh, that if you look at it just purely as a climate problem, uh, you're only seeing part of the picture. Uh, and that what every society, be it Joe Manchin or the United States or India or China or Bangladesh or whatever, is in one way or another grappling with is trying to balance three different goals. Uh, the first goal is how to have inexpensive and reliable energy that can unlock income growth and high standards of living that everyone around the world wants. Uh, the second goal is how to avoid having uh, air pollution, conventional air pollution, that causes people to lead uh, shorter and sicker lives. Uh, and then I'll just draw on the India and the United States as examples as we go along here. But on the, you know, on the energy consumption, uh, reliable and inexpensive energy, you know, uh, in the United States, the average person consumes about 13,000 kilowatt hours of electricity per year. Uh, in India, I think it's maybe about 1,200. In the state of Bihar, I don't know if any of the MPs are from Bihar, uh, it's like 200 per person. So it's like they're off by factor 65. Uh, and so that's like a utmost concern. The second is how to avoid the air pollution problems. Uh, the air pollution problems in India are especially, and also true in other countries, uh, especially poignant. The average person in India is losing probably four or five years of life expectancy wow. due to conventional air pollution. And then the third goal is how to avoid disruptive climate change. And because of India's position on the planet, uh, where it's already hot, uh, increases in temperature make it uh, especially vulnerable. So really, I don't think there's just a climate challenge. I think the challenge is to find, and every society is going to make these trade-offs in different ways, find a way to balance between those three goals. And those choices are going to reflect differences in income levels, differences in geography, uh, uh, differences in values and trade-offs between the future and the present. And in thinking about the climate problem, you have, I think you have to see that as part uh, against this larger picture. That's a really thoughtful point. I mean, and the trade-offs just got harder these past few months. Um, in, the, in the U.S., Jonathan, I mean, we have the Biden administration on the one hand telling oil companies, please drill more, and also saying we care deeply about climate change and, um, you know, and, and this is not going to disrupt our longer-term energy transition goals. What... What are you worried about? What is the thing to, you know, is it is it um, approvals of new LNG terminals that, that we should, you know, what, what are the decisions that that are looming that worry you that, that would say that we're going in the wrong direction? Or, or what, you know, what have they done that, that you think is yeah. the right way? So first, I just would come back on Michael's point. Um, I, I actually would agree this is an energy transition problem, but not exclusively an energy transition problem. And to me, it's the additions that are relevant 
but insufficient. There's just two narrow points on that. The first is that energy globally is about 65% of the total, which means that 35 is something else. And that's important as we think about the problem. And for a number of developing countries, probably central. Mm -hmm. Indonesia, the DRC, Brazil, partly India. So there were interesting questions about land use and agriculture and commercial and industrial activities, which some could be avoided if we went to the energy space, others might not be. And so I think there's a really inter intersection, important intersection between that agenda. On the US side, and it's really fun to be out of the government because I have way more latitude to think about this than I used to. Um, but on the US side, I would say a few things. The you first mean to one, speak. I'm sure you were thinking clearly the whole absolutely. time. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, um, I think a few things are worth noting. The first one is that we make a mistake if we think about climate as an instantaneous solution to a problem. We are not well served by saying, I have to cut everything tomorrow or I fail. It's, it's, a, it's a longer period. We have, it's, a, it's a problem of stocks and flows of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. We're about atmospheric concentrations. An individual year is not the issue that we are grappling with. Can I pause are, there and ask you? Because the media has been, <laughs> has been telling us that, that, I mean, the, and the IPCC report um, indicated that we really only have a decade-ish to get on the right track. That's probably true, but it doesn't mean we have to do it this month. Okay. It doesn't mean we have to do it even this year. So if I look, for example, at a transition in the energy space, I can think of a number of things. How many people in this room, for example, think the war with Ukraine and Russia will be continuing five years from now? I bet very few of us think that's likely. And if so, will we have found other models to manage our energy infrastructure? I think that probably is also likely. Facing us this winter, if we're the US and looking at high prices, or India and looking at high prices, or potentially low prices because it's an alternative from Russia, or looking at Germany with no real option for replacing Russian gas, I have a very different calculus for this winter, or this heating or cooling season. So can I square the circle between that instantaneous reaction and the medium-term reaction? To me, it's very much about infrastructure. Right. What am I building? So I've been doing a lot of work over the course of the last month and a bit, as we all have been thinking about Ukraine and what we deliver. And one of the real questions for me around Germany, which is, I think, relevant for other cases, is how do I manage this coming heating season? The first thing that Germany is going to do is going to make sure the residents have adequate heat, because if they don't, everyone freezes in their houses. That's not tenable. The second thing they probably worry about is the shape of the economy. As we look at Russian gas, it provides about 40% of total German supply, and the bulk of that is actually going to heavy industry. That means things like steel and chemicals, which translates into fertilizer and into cars. How much of that can I shut down and at what cost? How much could I replace from a different source and at what cost? Do I build new infrastructure to manage that? And if I do, what have I locked in? So I had a conversation with Robert Habeck, who's the German uh, economics and finance minister with this particular portfolio. Uh, and he, at this point, is before the Ukraine crisis happened. It was just after they'd come into office. I was there with Kerry. We had this interesting discussion around Germany's long-term intent, which is not to build out new oil and gas capacity or coal capacity or nuclear capacity, but to radically and rapidly build out renewable capacity. None of us currently, post-Ukraine, think they could build adequate renewables capacity to offset all of Russian gas. But we do think they could accelerate it by a substantial margin. We look at their current capacity in storage. It's vastly under-supported. That could be filled up. 
We look at the efficiency potential of what could be done this winter. That could be amplified. And look at a set of coal facilities that could be cut down this year or next year and say, wait a year. Don't build the new thing. Just run the old one another year. The net climate consequence of that is marginal. The consequence of building an entire new infrastructure is enormous. I'm now locked into a 30-year horizon. I'm now committed to a contract which runs for decades. I'm now committed to an institutional and a political structure which commits itself to perpetuating that institutional arrangement and makes it harder to cut it back next year or the year after. So for me, that's the thing we have to look at. It's the near-term consequence of an abrupt event versus the long-term consequence of how we respond and what we do. So just for example, I mean, the the expansions that DOE has authorized in, in recent months of, of uh, natural gas, of LNG, is one thing. But new infrastructure that would lock us into a longer fossil fuel future is, is so, the And even problem. here, I think there are open questions. That's okay. broadly the right frame from the way I sit. But then I have a separate frame. It's the frame of the coal community globally. That certainly applies oh. in India's case. Frankly, it applies in China's case. It applies in only a handful of other places that are big enough to really shape US and global markets. What do I think about infrastructure that might supply those, and what am I replacing? If I look at India, and there are others here deeply immersed in that debate, am I going to replace coal with gas? And if I do, what's the climate benefit? And if I do, what's the security risk? And how do I put those two together? And if I'm proposing to buy it, do I buy it from Russia? India is making that choice. Do I buy it from the United States? India is also making that choice, yes. right? It's not it's making one or the other. It's making both choices. Now, supposing the U.S. doesn't build additional infrastructure, then what happens to the Indian choice or the Chinese choice or the Indonesian choice? So here is where it gets much more complicated. I would myself bias to not building new, long-lived, high fossil intensity capital stock. I think if you do that, you're really hard-pressed to meet any of the commitments that we've made in Glasgow or that the science suggests that we should be taking if we want to solve the problem. But this is a conundrum. It is not self-evident that the politics will work quite so easily. So can I jump in there? One thing I'm curious on, the U.S., much of the progress it's made in uh, CO2 emissions in the last decade or 15 years has been from natural gas knocking out coal. Uh, I wonder if that causes either of you to have a view on natural gas uh, and building infrastructure for natural gas. Priyanka, let's let's start with so, you. And, yeah. and can so we? So I quite agree with what Jonathan spoke here about uh, the near-term vision versus the long-term ideas. So when we talk about building infrastructure, I'm very certain India would look at options, energy options, but its first priority would be energy security for its citizens. And that is a trade-off that we are making. So while we're talking about a long-term vision of creating infrastructures in terms of natural gas that we were speaking about, vis-a-vis -vis what we have at hand currently and what is easy for us to transition into. And we are seeing that as far as India is concerned, Indian citizens are concerned, they're very receptive to the idea of transition. But we also have to look at how it impacts our economy. Like I said, public investment would be huge. And how much is United States of America committed to supporting India in that transition? So we, we can, it's all fine to talk about India has to do this, this, this. We understand and we appreciate the concerns. <laughs> and we appreciate our responsibility as well. But we also need to understand how do we immediately answer what is the, 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 
crux of it all, our, our energy requirements, our energy security needs, as well as our economic growth. Are you worried that with the resurgence of coal especially, things are going in the wrong direction? I, I do not see a resurgence. There is a clear understanding that every state would have to cut down. We are looking at, even if you're looking at it in silos with not a total policy in place and a discussion not happening in terms of a, a central policy, but the states are extremely concerned and they are facing an impact of climate change, whether we're talking about small states like Uttarakhand, which are tourism states, or I'm talking about a big state like uh, Maharashtra, which is actively involved in transit transitioning uh, to green economy. So we're looking, we have to keep all of those concerns. So even if we do not have a, a, a climate policy in place, but we do have our goals in mind and every state is working towards it. So uh, outside of it, you might look at it at, as India not really transitioning from uh, uh, fossil fuel to non-fossil, but we're working very hard towards it. What, would, what I continue to say if you're talking about building infrastructure, we would also see who are the ones partnering with us and who are deeply committed to the idea of transitioning. And while we're on this, maybe you could also tell us a little bit about the, the private bill that you introduced to create a climate council. How would that work and why is it needed, do you think? I think the Climate Council bill comes out of concern for understanding that we have uh, made some commitments at the COP26 recently, and uh, the Prime Minister has spoken about the Panch Tatwa, that how are we going to the five ways of how we are going to be reducing our carbon footprint, how we are going to be transitioning to uh, renewable sources of energy. At that, at the same time, we have to prioritize this. Uh, like, like you just mentioned, US, again, it has lost the priority post COP26 because of the Ukraine-Russia uh, issue. India would also need to prioritize this and it can only, my climate council bill suggests that the prime minister leads the council where he looks at all state environment ministers as well as forest ministers who are on board, who are talking about challenges on, in their states and we have the prime minister immediately taking decisions and calls on this. So yeah. we do have some interstate councils which we are discussing about which are used to resolve such challenges because my state may not have the same uh, issues as maybe Odisha or Uttar Pradesh but we do have coastal cities and coastal lines which where our cities stand threatened because of, as per the IPCC report. So uh, it would have to lead by, to be led by the Prime Minister of India and he is committed to the cause and all the state environment ministers coming on board to ensure that uh, we are all on the same page and moving towards uh, the targets we are committed to. And it but, works for India. I mean, it, what we do all are committed and we understand is that this works in favor of India, that the faster we transition, the better it is for us, the lesser the impact of climate change that uh, India is seeing currently. Yeah. But I, Michael, I this, let me, I'm sorry, Michael. This, oh, pardon ahead. me. No. Um, I mean, because this, and I'll, I'll let you get your point, but I mean, this brings us into the conversations of equity that we've been having for decades in the climate talks and, you know, and that, we're not in any way really resolved in Paris, even though we have a new, I mean, they were, but we have a new framework, but we're still talking about what is the right way to address global equity at a moment when we are perilously close already to 1.5, we're at 1.1, and yet, you know, we're looking at, at deep differences in energy access still and, and energy security. Look, my view is countries have these three goals, societies have these three goals. It's going to look different depending where you are. If you have a state with 
per capita electricity consumption is 200. Yeah. It's almost unimaginable uh, that climate would be the first thing you think about. Uh, and that's right. And, you know, by the way, India is, Bihar is going to choose what they want, and India is going to choose what it wants, and the United States can choose what it wants. And so, if, but yet we have this common climate. Uh, and so I think really the only path that I see, uh, and I think Priyanka was raising this, is uh, if it means, if it's such a priority for the rich countries, then where are the resources? Uh, there's talking, and then there's actually uh, resources. Good uh, and I, I do think domestic politics are very complicated everywhere. Uh, I would not want to run for Senate in the United States on a campaign of, I really got to get $50 billion a month to India to help reduce the cost of clean energy there. Uh, so I, I think that's going to make it hard. But there are other things that you can do. Uh, the, you know, the fundamental problem is that the fossil fuels cost less. Uh, when you ignore the, uh, the, the pollution problems. Uh, and so anything we can do to reduce the cost of the fossil fuels relative to low carbon energy, I think that's something that the United States could do for the world. Which is a perfect segue into finance. Um, countries famously promised 100 billion annually. We're close, they're close, but not there. Um, and it's well past 2020. Um, we saw private sector, but we saw banks make, make uh, enormous pledges uh, in, in Glasgow, but, um, you know, but, but finance has really been a long time sticking issue and it's getting worse now, right, Jonathan? I mean, what are, what has Ukraine, what is the, the invasion of Ukraine and, um, you know, the very necessary funding that has, has gone for that, what has that done to the also very necessary conversation about how we help countries prepare for and address climate change? So listen, I, th I think there's three parts to your question. The first part is what about the $100 billion? Mm -hmm. uh, we're at about 96, I think is the most recent number that I saw. I don't know that I believe that. It uh, depends how you count it. Uh, do you count it in terms of something that was never there before? Do you count it in terms of uh, what people have promised but not yet delivered? Do you count it in terms of what countries are giving unfettered and un unencumbered or only things that are tied in some other ways? Give or take some, we're short, not a lot short. It is much less clear that the $4 billion, if it's actually 96 or let's say it's $10 billion, is the real barrier to change. That is not what's driving change. The vast majority of energy facilities that we're looking at building are literally hundreds of billions of dollars apiece. In India alone, you look at the infrastructure we require in transmission, this is a multi-hundred billion dollar investment. The four billion dollars that we might be short globally has no bearing on that investment. Yeah. It's a political problem though, and that has fallen, has, has fallen really on deaf ears in most of the developed countries that have not really moved that capital. The second part of the question is, what about the investment? Because the real issue here is not the 100 billion. The real issue is give or take some one to five trillion, pick your range, on an annual basis that the economics suggests you have to deliver if you want to make the transition. That number is actually in some ways much more interesting because on that number, there are all sorts of investments that are getting us in the trillion dollar range already. That is the scale of energy investment globally. We're making those investments. We want to shift slightly. India is making them in its own choices on gas. It's making cheaper investments because right now it can buy Russian gas at a nice discount. But at the end of the day, it's making choices and it is investing money. 
as is the US, as is Europe, as is China. The question is, can we shape that or steer that? We're getting better at that. If I look at things like the SEC and decisions there on reporting and the expectations for the Financial Stability Oversight Committee that Janet Yellen's working on, those are questions that will end up shaping the way investors think about risk. And when they do that, they will redirect their capital. And they're already doing that. And that money started to really add up. The third dimension here uh, to me is the equity question that you've raised. Will there actually be a transfer? How do we think about who gets the money and how much? And how do we respond to the fact that there are obvious inequities, both globally and within countries? The United States is relatively poor at this. I would argue that part of the campaign that Biden ran was a question of domestic equity, right? He was arguing that we had misallocated and the most vulnerable people, mostly in urban settings in the United States, mostly people of color, were vastly underrepresented in our system. And he ran a campaign that wanted to elevate that agenda. He currently is most likely to lose at least one, if not both houses, which suggests the American people are only partially bought in to that particular model. I don't see much difference as I look across the world at how countries have responded. I look at what's going on in Europe and I see equally inequity between Paris and the suburbs and the suburbs and the rural community. I see the same thing in India. Why is that Bihar only has 200? And if I look at Delhi, it's more like about 2000. These are equities within a nation that are really, really hard to manage. And yet we are not able to do that. And now we're asking the United States and Europe should transfer funds. And I'm looking at the politics and saying to myself, that's a tough problem. How do we do that? I am personally much more interested in can I capture investment? Can I move a structure in which there's an obvious return? Because India is a really interesting proposition for a private investor or Indonesia or Brazil. Can I emphasize that? Because then I can move the right scale and not worry this $4 billion, which is a rounding error, is where I should put my attention. And can I say, I mean, what, is, what are the, the main challenges facing India in meeting its 500 uh, gigawatt goal? Is it, is it money? Is it something else? Actually, I have to tell you an interesting dichotomy that prevails in India right now. So uh, the energy resources that we get through fossil fuels is much higher per unit as compared to what solar is giving to us. But what are the challenges that we are facing with solar? Is the capacity utilization factor that uh, one of my colleagues was mentioning to me, the reliability factor, as well as uh, the transfer, the transfer and distribution factor that we're looking at. So there are various sources of renewable energy. And I must also say another interesting dichotomy that exists. So Bihar, with 200 unit per capita uh, consumption, is likely to transition faster vis-a-vis a a Delhi with a 2,000 per capita consumption because anything that secures their energy requirements would be easier for us to tackle. And that is how India is looking at it as well. So renewable energy, transitioning to renewable energy for them would be a much easier task for us to do as compared to getting urban cities to uh, transfer. So uh, those are things, the dichotomies that prevail, the challenges that we are looking at solutions for. And uh, all I can say is if we put our heads together and like he said, realign our resources, realign our tech know-how, our research know-how and partner more, you know, I would say we, India does not need to tell you that what a big market it is. 
India does not need to tell you that we are so receptive to any technology transfer that comes up way. India is not, uh, we do not need to tell you all that any kind of research that supports our transition is going to uh, benefit. It's a win-win situation for both sides. It's for you all to understand that. So we are open to this. And if these challenges could be addressed, I think we'd, we'd be making that transition sooner rather than later. Michael, the, uh, another COP is going to be <laughs> upon us before, before we know it this time. And COP27, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, um, you know, what... It's it's already being discussed as the the finance cop. It's it's uh, it's in Africa, focused heavily on on adaptation and the needs of of countries on adaptation. What, uh, given the politics right now, you know, what should the U.S. role be, and what should we be doing and offering that that's not happening? Um, Jonathan's probably, I mean, Jonathan's certainly way more of an expert than I am on this. Uh, I would just say, I think that there's a lot, the high level commitments are very important. Uh, but I think the world has a hard time turning them into actionable policies. Uh, and you know, if I could put my thumb on the scale, I think, uh, a great challenge is kind of leveling the energy playing field. Uh, right now, fossil fuels get this free ride. Uh, the pollution that comes from them that shortens people's lives, most places that's not really regulated in a meaningful way. The CO2 is not regulated uh, in a meaningful way. And, uh, you know, I, it, it, maybe the, the Jonathan will have better ideas on how to structure it, but something that would incentivize leveling the playing field so that demand choices, so that people's choices uh, would reflect the damages associated with their consumption. I think that would be uh, terrific. I worry that sometimes we talk too much about uh, we should build more import or export terminals for natural gas or more solar panels or whatever it is, and we're kind of missing what's driving the whole thing, which is the demand side and this very, very unequal playing field that gives the fossil fuels just an enormous uh, yeah. subsidy. And it's not for free. Uh, we pay for it with shorter and sicker lives. We pay for it with higher chances of disruptive climate change. Let me let me just follow up with you on, on one point. I mean, um, John Kerry called fossil fuel subsidies the definition of insanity. <laughs> we uh, yeah, we but he's still... talking. But he's. Ta I suspect Johnson know better than I. I suspect those are subsidies for drilling and things like that. Well, I'm talking about when you purchase electricity or you purchase uh, you go to the gas pump that the prices don't reflect. Absolutely, the right, the price on, on carbon. But, but also, I wanna touch on fossil fuel subsidies. It means it's a very different story in, in developing countries and, and you know, in, in countries like the US. But um, we've had a failing effort to try and, and eliminate fossil fuel subsidies for many years. Why is it so impossible? Well, that's Jonathan's territory. <laughs> <laughs> I, agree, I agree with your description, though. <laughs> it is pretty interesting. So uh, the G20 has taken this up in any number of its meetings over the course of the last, let's call it 20 years. I think I wrote a memo about it in I, 2009. I, I recall that memo. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, I, I said it would be a great idea. It, it was still a good idea, right? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm struck this next uh, G20 meeting is going to be held in Indonesia. Uh, the uh, Joko Widodo is the President of Indonesia has invited both Ukraine and Russia. Uh, the spoke the, 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 at the last meeting in which the Russians spoke, the Americans, the UK, and the Canadians all walked out. 
So if we think there's going to be a solution on subsidies because the G20 has been picking it up, I think we should hold our breaths for a long time. It's not happening anywhere quick. The second thing which I'd say, though, is that we need to be extremely careful on the subsidy discussion. Um, I spent some time at the International Energy Agency where we did a lot of work on this, and there's a, a very strong and compelling narrative that looks at the larger economic cost of subsidies. They're very high, right? You kind of look at, if you break it down in a kind of a rational economic way, we are paying a lot, and most of it's hidden. But there are politically powerful reasons for that. So which one of the constituents, if you're a representative, and Priyanka can speak to this, which one of the constituents are you going to tell, you know that, that, that slightly lower cost electricity that I've provided to the government? I'm taking that away because we think you should pay. And they look back at you and say, me? I make nothing. I'm living at the edge. I can't possibly afford that. You are dooming me and my family to even more abject poverty. That's... That, that's a little bit the extreme case. Okay, wait, can we put Brack on the... That's uh, solved by putting okay, a price here, on carbon. Because like, <laughs> there's such an obvious blackboard solution, which is take the money and then just directly pay it to poor families, which I understand is can be difficult to administer. Uh, but in the beauty of uh, the classroom... We know how to solve that problem. And, <laughs> and the problem of the classroom and the politics are different. Uh, I, I understand that's what we're asking Priyanka. I think John Podesta once said to me, yeah, you could find 300 economists who want to put a price on, common, a price on carbon. I'm not sure you can find 30 members of Congress. Yeah. Um, Priyanka, can, what, what do you want to see happen at this next COP? And what would you like to see in, in the realm of, of finance? So uh, two things, uh, as far as COP26 was concerned, there was a lot of controversy about which you, your opening comments, you spoke about phase out, phase down. So those are kind of, uh, you know, uh, conversations that are likely to happen, which are going to create some kind of uh, disagreements. But the idea is that we are all sharing a similar responsibility. Some will have a larger responsibility towards developing nations because for us, the uh, like I said, it is about uh, our economic growth as well, asking us to be at the fulcrum of it. While we do know that we are at the fulcrum of the, at the receiving end also and we are expected to be giving as well. Yeah. So those are convergences which I see happening. And um, now with, with the entire Russia, Ukraine... Um, you know, what we are seeing unfold, how it will play out for everyone's energy security needs is something which is worth exploring and talking about. But we will need to um, steer the dialogue towards, um, like I've been continuing to say, about how do we re redirect the climate finance? How do we agree on what are your parameters of climate finance? You're getting away by saying that, okay, $100 billion, we have, you know, spent half of that or three-fourths of that. But how is it had you know, real-term benefits for those countries which are at the receiving end of it all. So those are things which I think should be deliberated upon. And uh, India is doing what, what it best can. And uh, I think the world at large is understanding our challenges as well. Yeah. I'm going to open this up to questions in a moment. I just, I have, it might be a stupid question, but it, like what happens when Russia comes to COP27? La, 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 we're here to talk about loss and damage. I mean, what, what does, does, does the U.S., does, you know, do countries walk out? Do they have uh, these discussions? What's, what? I'm a little hard-pressed to imagine people walking out. Um, I'm also hard-pressed to imagine Russia not showing up. I think they will show up. Uh, interestingly for me, so I, I was in Moscow with Kerry earlier in the year. 
Uh, and what was fascinating to me about the meetings that we had, and we had meetings with Lavrov, and we had meetings with, um, with Ilgaryev, who's the climate envoy, and we had meetings with the energy ministry and the deputy prime minister. We, we talked to Putin, but it was a phone call. We didn't actually see him. He was uh, not in Moscow when we were there. But they were pretty informed. It was not a question of not having an engaged set of interlocutors. They were really worried about forest fire. We had an extended discussion. I don't know if you guys have seen any of the pictures of yeah. the Russian forest burning. It, you know, it makes California look like, like small potatoes because this entire arc across northern Russia is just burning. They were worried about methane. They were interested in engagement. So there's this flip side about they're very important to the global economy. And right now they're a pariah at least for the United States and for much of Western Europe, which is focused on this. And so how do we grapple with that? And we should be clear, Russia historically has been, let's call it obstructionist in the climate negotiations. Almost invariably at the end of the meeting, Russia will raise its flag and object to something. It's never clear they couldn't have objected much earlier and had it fixed. They like to object at the end and put a wrench into things. And they've been doing this for 30 years. So it's not like it's a new model. The question is, what will happen now in the face of this global community? I don't think we know yet. It's a little ways away. The next round of meetings is in June, and then we'll have the big formal meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh. The June meeting will be held in the DRC. Uh, it'll be very focused on finance and adaptation on, on forests. The meeting in Sharm will be focused on finance, on adaptation, less on forests, but more on food. These discussions will kind of rise, and we'll see what happens. That'll be fascinating. Um, I'm not sure if there is a microphone going around. Uh, raise your hand and I'll... Um, I see gentleman in the black shirt uh, on this side. If you could uh, tell us your name and uh, standard disclaimer, please keep it to a question, not a lengthy comment. Thanks. Sure, my name is Rod Nickel. Um, in the Western world, at least, I guess, carbon capture seems to be the big hope for making meaningful progress on emissions. I'm uh, interested to hear from Jonathan and, and Michael particularly about how realistic that is, given that carbon capture has been around for a long time, but it has never been done on the, the kind of scale that the U.S. and Canada are talking about now. Michael? I think we're in uh, very early days. There's never been in scale. There's never been a price for it in any meaningful way, except a little bit for enhanced oil recovery. Uh, I think we're in early days. We should be shooting money at that and every other idea to get either get carbon out of the atmosphere or prevent it from going there and turn over the cards and maybe we'll get lucky and there'll be some inexpensive, reliable ways to do it. But it's very early days, hard to judge. I only had one point, which is that I've not yet seen a model that gets us to even below two degrees without substantial carbon uh, offsets in terms of CCS or even direct carbon capture. Uh, to me, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily doable yet. It means that the scientists can't figure out a way to do it without it. And that puts a degree of pressure on the technology, which I think is beginning to be our fruit. We're seeing a lot of movement in that sector. There's a lot of investment going there. Uh, I, one of the things about being out in California and Silicon Valley is there's a lot of money, but a lot of money is moving into this set of new technologies. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be pessimistic. I agree with Michael. It's pretty early. But, you know, just to, uh, John's is exactly right. In all these graphs, this magical moment occurs where uh, carbon dioxide removal emerges out of the woodwork. Uh, my own view is uh, that's not going to happen until there's a clear price signal for it. Uh, and so there's a lot of investment in these companies, but these companies have no one to sell to by and large. 
There's the 45Q tax credit. That's the one. Uh, but if we're really going to pull them out of the woods and find out what they got, we got to pay them for it. And uh, so we have to find a way to do that. Only one additional thing here. We've had extended conversations internationally on this. And uh, while the R&D agenda has been more advanced, particularly the United States and a few other places, it's actually not into the demo phase in very many places at all. And one of the things that's been fascinating is in particular talking to China, which has done some early work on the R of the RDD&D. They haven't done so much work on the first D, much less the second or the third Ds. And what you're left with is this question of how do you scale? The price would be helpful, but there is a combined price right now, if I look at the California model, of both 45Q, which gets me about 50 bucks, but then I look at the, uh, at the renewable fuel standard in California, it gets me another 100 bucks. I'm the better part of $150 into CCS. That's beginning to make some of it commercial, some. Actually, can I follow up? Uh, not on the technology side, but on the political side, you know, when, if, if, when, if Republicans, you know, take one, one or both houses, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a renewed emphasis on CCS as a solution, as the top solution. To what extent, you know, I think what we hear a lot from, from that side of the aisle is we don't need to eliminate fossil fuels. We need to eliminate emissions. Is that, can you kind of truth squad that? I mean, how, how far does CCS get us and in what time frame? Uh, and can we really rely on it. I have yet to see a compelling economic model that suggests it is currently cheaper to do CCS than to reduce fossil consumption. I have yet to see a model that suggests I can reduce all emissions cheaper than doing CCS. So it's somewhere in that space, we need them both. Michael, do you agree? Yeah, I just add, uh, at this stage, you know, the planet's at 40 billion tons a year. It's growing every year. Uh, I think the goal is tons, tons, tons. Uh, I don't care where they come from. Uh, we should, there's no right way. I don't like batteries more or solar panels more than I like CCS, as long as the CCS is cheaper. Yeah. Uh, over here in the second row. Hold on, wait, wait for the microphone coming down your way. Hi, Anand Sudarshan at the Energy Policy Institute. I mean, I have a quick question on on, on the finance side perhaps to Jonathan, you know, when Biden got elected, one of the things Build Back Better did was an incredibly expensive climate bill, uh, pushing a lot of money into domestic spending. The price tag on that bill did not make it easier to pass. And you could argue that dollar for dollar, you would get a larger reduction in future carbon emissions if you sent that money to countries outside. So why is it good politics to try and spend the money here and get knocked down on the price tag rather than to send it abroad and get more for? The president should answer this, Priyanka, because <laughs> it is, it's, it's a political question. It's not an economics question. So I, I had the privilege of helping facilitate the negotiations for the East Coast states, which developed the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or called REGI. This is, I don't know, 15 years ago, and we did this big negotiation with the states. The states were unwilling almost to trade between themselves. They'd rather hold all the revenue and have all the investment stay at home. Because the politics of sending money outside your constituency is extraordinarily bad. I amplify that by a factor of, let's call it a billion for every dollar you want to spend going overseas. It's so hard. It doesn't matter that it's cheaper collectively. It matters that I don't see any return. I see the return in the out years on climate, but I don't see the investment in my community. I don't see better power. I don't see more reliability. I don't see food. I definitely don't see jobs. 
I see somebody else getting those jobs and they're going to compete with me. Oh my goodness, I don't like that. So to me, that's a huge political barrier. I assume it's virtually the same for you. Absolutely. And you'd know that better than all of us. <laughs> You're struggling with every state to have a, you know, but I must admit, uh, Epic has been doing some amazing work uh, with the state governments as well as the center and helping us with the data the AQLI discussion we had yesterday, it has been point of conversation in India. It's one of the most talking points about the mortality rate and how air pollution is impacting our lives in uh, India and how it creates health challenges for Indian citizens. So I think these are important data points to have and data sets to have to have conversations around it. But yes, I do agree. If it is about spending money, it has to happen in your own nation, politically as well. Your own backyard. <laughs> We had this very interesting conversation a few weeks ago on uh, carbon tax uh, with, with Carlos Corbello, former Republican, former member of Congress from, from Florida. And he was making the case that, uh, you know, while some groups have, have pushed for a carbon tax and dividend, uh, members of Congress would never go for it because they want to be able to spend the money. And uh, so it's an adjacent but, but similar political issue. Anyone on this side of the room, uh, in the, the row over here with the things? <laughs> I'm sorry, I did a terrible job of saying where the person was. <laughs> Thank you very much. My name is Subhashmita, and I'm from uh, India. And first of all, I welcome all our MPs uh, who have come here all the way from India. And uh, my question is here, uh, like uh, every year the leaders meet at the COP, and we have uh, certain uh, very high ambitious goals and all that. and. Uh, in that context, when I uh, say these are not enforceable on any any country, because uh, the U.S. is a sovereign country, we are a sovereign country. Nobody can question why did not you uh, uh, have the promise? Uh, why the promise of the Paris Agreement failed, and why do we need the money and all these things? In that context, I want to ask uh, the panelists that how feasible and how realistic to have a, a futuristic goal of 2050 or 2070 or having a net zero and backtracing these solutions to till date, where do we really stand today to achieve this goal of a net zero? I'd like to grab that one. For me? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to answer that. Yeah. I think it is important to have a consensus and to have these ambitious goals. And whether we call it ambitious or we call them achievable goals, that is about the commitment that is involved by all countries. But it's always good to try and work towards convergences and the common challenges that we face. So we may not be able to achieve a certain target, but we are all working and focused towards uh, you know, achieving those uh, you know, targets. So that is something I, I, I would always say better to have convergences Always, always on that side, convergences over conflicts and having a better world for the future generations to come. That is our responsibility. And if we work towards it, even annually, if we continue to discuss it, it's a good start to uh, you know, achieving these ideas. Michael, do you think 1.5 is achievable? Oh, uh, <laughs> sure. It's technically achievable. Uh, is, it going, uh, is it a goal that we're likely to meet? No, that's not a goal that we're likely to meet. I think it, it's, uh, in fact, I would say 1.5 is kind of what I was trying to attack from the beginning, the idea that there's a climate crisis and you're not paying attention to people's energy needs and you're not paying attention to air pollution. Like, yeah, if that was the only thing we cared about, it was achievable, but we care about multiple things. Uh, and in many parts of the world, 
those other things often, you know, on a balance end up on the heavier side. Jonathan, what what is the pol political ramifications then of, and may maybe maybe you disagree on. I'll ask you also whether you think we can still hit the 1.5 goal. But if we cannot, what are the political ramifications of acknowledging that for politicians to acknowledge that? So there was a paper that was released yesterday by the World Meteorological Organization, which suggests that we're now at less than a 50% probability of being able to get to 1.5. So the odds are shifting, right? We had come down from a two-third probability. Uh, we're now at less than 50%. The numbers that the International Energy Agency ran give you the slightly more positive story. They suggest we've come down over the course of the last 25 years from a trajectory that would put us on a pathway to perhaps as much as five degrees to if we meet all the commitments that countries took in Paris and in Glasgow, we're maybe at about 1.8. That's actually a pretty interesting number if you could meet them. So it kind of comes back to the question that you've asked about do we meet them and is there value? I would argue, one, that there's enormous value. The fact that we're having this discussion probably wouldn't happen if we hadn't had an international commitment that we'd all tried to meet. Yeah. So it doesn't mean we're going to get there, but it means that if you wanted to get there, you certainly have to have the political context for a conversation, and the goal-setting process generates that. In every country, I have not been to any country in which we talk to representatives of parliaments, uh, community activists, local uh, officials. They're all aware of this discussion. And that changes the nature of the conversation, even if we don't get there. And the second question is, what does it mean at any given point to succeed or not succeed? We kind of treat it like an on-off switch. If I'm at 1.5, I've won. If at 1.6, I've failed. Certainly, I failed at 1.8. But the reality is, it's a continuum of damages. We've already seen damages. The numbers that I've seen for India suggest you would not have had this heat wave if climate weren't there. The probabilities are very low. It's not that it couldn't have happened. It's very unlikely. And you wouldn't have had several years in a row of them, or the kind of massive shift in the monsoon cycle, or the American flooding. We're already getting damages. Every tenth of a degree matters. If the context of setting 1.5 got me to 1.8 instead of 2.3, what a win. What a huge win. Not enough, but a major, major win. Can I just add something sure. to saying there? I, there is political value uh, in having something that focuses mind, but just to underscore what he's saying, I, I spend probably more of my life than I'd like to admit trying to figure out what the damages from climate change are going to be, and I have never seen any like enormous jump at 1.5 or 2 or 2.5. It's it's all kind of marginal, and every tenth of a degree matters. It'll you know if it's 1.9, that's better than two. Uh, but the kind of cataclysmic th idea that there's something which sometimes shows up in the media, uh, not in your pieces, We I'm are sure. just reporting what, I mean, the IPCC has found there's a stark difference between 1.5 and 2, right? For small island nations, for, yeah. and, and I know that, that I, understand, I understand the point that, that every, every bit of a degree matters. And I think it's, it's notable, too, that, I mean, it wasn't that long ago when the Paris commitments were, were set that we were, looking at uh, 3.4, I want to say, degrees, you know, is, is what they, they thought we would get to even if all of the commitments were made. So uh, I know I'm a professional cynic, but <laughs> there, have been, there have been important strides made. 
Yeah, no, I think actually, maybe this doesn't get enough attention. Two really great things happened. Uh, they were probably both out of our control, but they happened. Uh, one, the renewables got cheaper, uh, and that's showing up in all the models now. That's yeah. why we're not on a path to such uh, big temperature changes. The price difference has shrunk. Uh, that was not predictable. Uh, the second thing, which doesn't receive quite as much attention, uh, is uh, the, our sense, our, our best estimate uh, of how much warming we would get for doubling the CO2 has actually shrunk. Uh, mm -hmm. At least the, the high end of the distribution has disappeared. Uh, and so that means like some of the really, really nasty stuff uh, it no longer seems a, a, as likely. And so th those are two giant gifts that we got. That's interesting. But I would maybe add two things here. There is a big difference between 1.5 and 2. I don't think anyone's arguing that that's not a big change. I'm saying that if you get 1.6 instead of 1.5, would you have failed? That's not quite fair. Right. Yeah. But the numbers suggest that the, the delta is coral reefs. The delta probably is at least a meter, if not long-term, three to five meters on sea level. The delta is clearly a disease vector change. The delta is almost certainly substantial species loss. So the difference there is enormous. It's just that every tenth does matter, and I don't think it's an on-off question. Uh, maroon shirt in the middle. Uh, hi, my name's Arya Shiv, and my question's for Priyanka. Uh, Michael mentioned this interesting point of you have a trade-off between health and economic development or facing the climate issue, and specifically speaking to India, where they are hitting record temperatures this May. I think I saw the number of 43.5 degrees Celsius, where people are literally dropping dead of heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Or on the other side, where you have future deaths that are going to happen from loss of life, loss of health from climate. I just wanted to understand what is the short-term view the Indian government is taking on this, because people don't have the people don't have the resources to just turn on an air conditioner. So, on the, in the short term, how do you face this issue? Because it's not feasible to say, oh, we're going to just fix climate change in the short term and deal with the heat that way. So, uh, firstly, uh, all three issues are interlinked. Climate change, health parameters, as well as uh, the cost of living, right? We cannot look at one and excluding the other two. So as far as heat waves are concerned, this is something that we are facing, not just because India created that, that, that kind of a situation. We are facing, it's a, it's a global impact that we are facing, a country which is developing, which has its own energy needs. Now, as to how India can address this, I must tell you, not everyone has an AC to switch on in India right now. So that is another challenge that we face. So for what are, how are we prioritizing it? Our priority right now would be to ensure that we, we create a situation where we are, of course, looking at climate mitigation measures, but we are also creating an atmosphere where they have the very basic needs that a person needs to live a dignified life. So those are some issues that we have to tackle at a macro level. So one cannot be at the cost of the other. So that is where we stand. We are, like I said at the beginning of my conversation, that while India is facing the brunt of climate change, and India is also expected to address these challenges and find, uh, you know, take decisions at the cost of its economic growth. So we are standing at that precipice, right? We have time for one more question. Do uh, over, you have the, the yeah. best final question? Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Ritesh. Um, what I'd like to understand is uh, the impact of 
climate change, especially in places like India, the displacement that it is going to cause, uh, given our long coastlines, and of course, um, um, you know, as the gentleman just mentioned, rising temperatures could also make it impossible for our farmers to work. Um, these challenges that are uh, posing countries like India, uh, which are in the global south, which will be facing the brunt of this uh, more so than the United States or, let's say, Russia, where we happen to see a presentation lately which said that, uh, you know, you actually end up freeing up land and uh, the United States has probably uh, gains coming out of this in terms of life expectancy and uh, more land to, 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 uh, to till. So how do you, you know, does this, and as you mentioned rightly, that it's very difficult for, uh, from a, you know, a politics point of view to justify this expenditure uh, to your constituents, to the rest of the world, especially when it's actually seeming to benefit you. Um, so how does that, uh, when you talk of these investments now uh, to the rest of the world, how does that sort of, um, um, you know, span out for, for people in India who are going to be displaced? Maybe, maybe <laughs> Jonathan, if, if you wouldn't mind, start, we can start with you. So I, I think several things are going to happen. I, I think you're painting a very plausible picture of the future. Uh, the numbers that I tend to use start with Syria, in which we had a few million people move to Europe and essentially lead to a change in European politics and a series of revolutions in North Africa. Uh, I currently look at Ukraine and I think about how that's going to play out. There are more millions coming there. Uh, they're slightly more welcome, which is, I think, a fascinating kind of dynamic. Uh, and we're just beginning to see the fracture lines developing in European politics. So what happens when Bangladesh floods and they move into India? You talk about the Indian floods in India. What about the Bangladeshi floods moving into India? How will you cope with that? Because you're high ground. And that doesn't count what happens in Goa and doesn't count what happens across in Mumbai. How does that get managed? I don't think we have a clue. At the moment, I kind of take a look at what's going on in the United States and think about the play in Florida, because Florida's seeing some of this, right? The, the high tide days in Florida, you, you see pictures on the front page of the Times in which people are wading in water up to their hips on a regular sunny day because the flood tides are in. When do we abandon Miami? How do we think about New York? We ended up with the sea level rise caused over the course of the last decade and, um, and her superstorm Sandy. We think that the sea level rise was less than one foot in the New York Harbor. That was the difference between the floods going into the US, uh, to the New York City subway system because it just was high enough to top over the barrier and all the entrances. And we flooded half of the subways in downtown New York. That was the difference, not because Sandy didn't happen, that might have happened anyway, but because the sea level rise was just enough to tip the balance. I don't think we have a clue. And to me, the, the damages and the reason that this is actually a crisis, it's kind of a slow unfolding crisis. It won't be there tomorrow. We'll have these iterations. We'll have this most recent likely scenario in my mind. The, the numbers that I'm seeing for Ukraine suggest that they won't plant this harvest season. They're not going to get the wheat. 80% of the wheat in Egypt, which is hosting the next COP, is going to come from a combination of Ukraine and Russia. But the problem wasn't the fact that they got it from Ukraine and Russia. The problem is that this is projected not to be a particularly good year for American wheat or for Chinese wheat or for Brazilian wheat. 
And that mostly seems to be tied to an expectation for this season shift because of climate. So it's not that it was a massive change. It was just enough to slightly reduce the numbers, which make anything like Ukraine a really tipping event as opposed to not. If we could take a poll and try to do more work, I would suggest this is one of the areas that is most critical for us to think about. How do we manage these risks? Can I, you know, one critic, there's many, many criticisms, and fair, criticisms of economists. Uh, one of them is that they only look, they're like the drunk looking for their keys only under the streetlight. Uh, and what comes out of a lot of the research that's being done here uh, is a sense of what the impacts of uh, climate change will be. But there's only some things we can measure, and there's plenty of things that we can't measure. And your question, and Jonathan's comment, is in the spirit, in the space of things that we we don't really know how to measure. So what we can show, and I think this is in your mind's eye, is there's these vast swatches of the planet where there's several billion people where the climate damages look like they're going to be especially severe, and then you have these other regions where it looks like things are going to be great, maybe even better than they are today. Uh, and in a world without lines that we call borders, like people would just go. Uh, but that's not really how the world works. And so we don't know how to uh, value that. We don't know how to estimate that. We don't know how to turn that into dollars or to rupees or whatever your favorite currency is. Uh, and that's the stuff that is pretty, uh, don't know what to do with. So we're more comfortable under the light looking for the keys. Priyanka, I'm going to give you the last word here. Tell us amid this very difficult conversation that we're having. What what gives you hope right now? What gives me hope is the entire young generation making this as the you know main issue to talk about and having concerns and wanting uh, solutions to that. And they're pushing their political uh, representatives to make that the fulcrum of the conversation. At least I can say that in India. And that, I think, is the biggest hope. And I see hope uh, when I say the young in India, we, uh, the state I come from, Maharashtra, is led by a very young environment minister who's extremely concerned about all these climate impact uh, issues that we are going to face as a state, as a nation, and globally. And he's working in that direction. So I, I only take hope from the fact that we have a young generation which is looking at this at, from a very serious point of view and want us to address those. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Sam Ori.